Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. On today's episode, we talk to drag performer Ala Mode about how she got her start in drag, how the popularity of a certain show has changed the scene, and why this podcast will never take a sponsorship from Supreme. Well, thanks for coming on. It's really great to have you. Uh, how did you get started in drag, um, and and what sort of drew you to that type of performing? Yeah, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, originally. I was very lucky to travel around a lot when I was younger for my dad's work. I feel like that really informed the art I ultimately ended up creating. When we came back to the states, um, uh, high school. I don't even really want to talk about it. You know, it's awful for most people. If you're an artist, it's awful. If you're a jock, it's your glory years. Um, I mean, there's a lot more nuance in there, but that's a whole separate podcast. Uh, went to college in uh, Philadelphia. I went to Temple University. I went, I graduated the dance degree. Um, I'm in the big wide world of dance art life. Um, and I realize I hate concert dance. Um, uh, hate might be a strong word. Maybe the word is dislike. Uh, you know, people are making self-indulgent pieces about, um, how jellyfish bleed blue. Who cares? Who cares? Um, so I was just kind of like, I don't think I want to do this, even though senior year was this very like experimental time for me. And it was, it really opened the doors, um, in my brain for, Oh, I can do anything as an artist. I can do whatever I want and I can express in different ways. Graduate college, I auditioned for a burlesque troupe called Liberty City Kings Dragon Burlesque, which was originally just a drag king troupe. Um, and then it, it, it kind of, um, grew to include boylesque. Um, like cis male boylesque, and then also drag queens, um, and then cis femme um, uh, burlesque as well. Um, and I originally was performing first as a terrible performance name. It was Julius Seizure. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> terrible. Wow. What did I think I was? Awful. Like not PC. Also just like, what? No. Um, quickly changed that to Christian Crusade, which I was much happier with. Um, and you know, it was basically boy body, um, more of a feminine kind of face. I would not say my makeup skills were incredible. I would not say my costumes were incredible. Um, but it was this great period of time where I could experiment and do whatever I want. I was broke. I was serving at a restaurant a lot. I was performing. Uh, it was a great time to be in this collective. Moved to New York for my day job teaching ballroom dance to fifth graders in public schools. Um, decide, right? Decide that I have to, mostly based on what my parents told me, not do burlesque because New York parents are not as woke as you think they are. So stop doing burlesque, kind of retreat. Uh, into, oh, I'm going to be a career person. I'm a professional now. LinkedIn, this, you know, ties, whatever. And then moved to Sacramento for my partner's job. Um, and I was like, I don't know anyone here. It doesn't matter. Went to the club, went to Badlands, um, my home bar, in November of 2018. Um, Monday night after hours, open mic drag show. I was like, yes, this is it. And so I started doing a version of the stuff I'd already done. Gender fuckery, and it's morphed. Wait, you went to Open Dragnet? How long did it take you to get booked as a Badlands girl? Well, okay, so that's an interesting thing. Um, uh, Monday nights are incredible. Apple Adams, about three years ago, started this awesome open mic drag night. Um, And uh, I do weird performance that kind of like pushes the boundaries of, of, um, and blurs the lines a little bit. So I'll do this sloth number where I'm really slow and it takes me like four minutes to get from one end of the stage to the other, or I'll, you know, do like a weird slutty Mary Poppins number or whatever it is. Like people are just like, who is this person? Um, and you know, I think drag race is really incredible for spotlighting the art form. I also think it's really shifted what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. This wig should like, should have been replaced a long time ago, but she is old faithful. And, um, I have a car bill, <laughs> right? If I want to be on TV, my hair needs to cost me anywhere from 300 to a thousand dollars. And that's one wig, right? Every human hair lace front ever. 
Exactly. Um, so well, let's 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 just jump right into that. When you started um, drag and like you're, you're dipping your toe into all that kind of gender fuckery, was Drag Race already a thing? And as you've seen, kind of Drag Race take over this this kind of genre of performance. How is how have you seen it kind of change the expectations for you as a performer, and just like who even gets interested in drag? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Well, I'm not that old not to remember when I was watching season two in my um, senior year of high school. Um, and you listen to Rue and you listen to uh, World of Wonder, the, the production company, talk about how they cast the first three or four seasons of Drag Race. They wanted queens who looked like hometown bar girls. So everyone is much more painted. They're much more kind of like, um, you know, small town America drag queen. And I remember like watching that show and being scared of drag queens. I think because they're so beautiful and I could never fathom that a man could be so beautiful because men can be so ugly. Um, So I just was like, this is fascinating to me. The expectations. I don't think I got booked for anything for a long time because I don't follow that kind of like, I'm going to do an Ariana Grande song. I'm going to do a Britney song. Um, I don't do that. People don't know what to expect from me when I walk on stage. I'm very proud of that, but it does get in your head. And then you have to remember that, and this sounds shady, but I swear it's not, you're in Sacramento. So if someone in Sacramento is not booking you, you have to remind yourself, I had to remind myself, oh, I've performed in New York. I've performed in Philly. Sacramento is an incredible drag scene. Why am I mad? Why is this consuming me? Well, it's, it's the, it's the artist community that I'm in right now. You know, it's like when you're, um, it's like when you get a crit in art school, you know, and so-and-so decides to read you and it's like, we're all getting the same degree. Like who cares? Um, so I guess what I think is crazy is the expectation around like spending so much money. Drag is expensive. Right. Like for context for Mason, people who like get on the show understand that it's like their like lifetime opportunity. People said, some people have quoted like, I paid more for getting ready for drag race than for my house in like a time frame of like three weeks. And so as a, you know, straight cis Man, like that is, it's fascinating to me because that is in a lot of ways my sort of, not my only framework for drag, but it is the largest contributor to it just because it is the the front facing thing for a culture that I'm just not a part of and wouldn't necessarily have been, I probably would have been because of who I hang out with and, and who I know, but for a lot of other straight men, like just wouldn't have been exposed to it any other way. Right. Um, and so I'm really fascinated by how, as an artist myself, like how when something in your art form becomes mainstream, how it really sort of recalibrates expectation of people who aren't part of that art form. But something that we also like, I think I was thinking while you both were talking also, you know, transferably, I was listening to some of the past episodes of the podcast to get an idea of what the vibe was. And, um, Instruments cost thousands of dollars. Art supplies cost thousands of dollars. But I think for me, it's like, I'm like, oh, like, I don't know why it feels indulgent. I think it's because of the nature of the, of the medium. Like it feels, it feels like I'm spending money on a a gorgeous, wonderful, amazing wig for me, not for my career. And I'm not sure what that, I think that's a me thing, but it's interesting. Maybe it's about it not being normalized. I'm not sure. I mean, I have, I feel the same way about a camera or about, you know, upgrading a computer or something. It, it, I, I would say that there are, there are probably parallels to that in anything. And, and it goes with just being an artist of any kind in general. Like it is such an unavoidably self-indulgent thing, right? That like believing that whatever you do is important enough to, to be done for or in front of or consumed by other people. Right. But especially as like drag kind of blurs the lines between yourself and this persona and, <laughs> <laughs> that all gets tangled up. So do you consider a la mode separate from yourself in no sense at all? Or do you just, or is it kind of a la mode is just you in and out of drag? 
I have to go back for one some, one second. Uh, it's something we were just talking about. There's this incredible Venn diagram that is uh, it, one circle is crippling self-doubt and the other circle is unabashed narcissism or absolute narcissism. And then space in the center is being an artist. Yes, you've seen it. Okay, it's <laughs> yes, amazing. It's, if your listeners yeah. haven't seen it, now you now you understand all of your artist friends. That will I'll, help you. I will try to find it and put it in the show notes. It's, it's, uh, so it's spot on. It's so good. It's so good. Um, so I was I wanted to be a fashion designer when I was a kid. Um, like every female friend of mine growing up, and then every gay that I know, you know, at that age, eight, nine, ten. Um, my mom. Uh, has worked in magazines all her life. Um, and the art director at one of the magazines gave me this beautiful, like 50 pencil, 50 piece color pencil set. I have all my old drawings uh, upstairs uh, in a file. And I was, what I realized very recently as I was sketching and creating these concepts for this persona. So they are, they are, the, I think they are the same person. A lot of me shows, uh, shows up in there. What I think is, uh, interesting is I'm confident as myself, not in drag, but there's something about all of this that brings it to another level, but it's what like RuPaul always talks about. The, she refers to the drag part as the monster. There is something really interesting about that shift. And I do have to constantly kind of be aware of it. I'm always nervous. It's going to become this like all consuming or other thing. That's part of why I don't drink at shows ever. <laughs> mm, which is almost impossible because that's so much of just how culture works, right? Yeah, gay culture too. Any bar culture, I never want to look messy on stage, like in that way. That's not my vibe. And as somebody who spent their late teens, early twenties playing music in bars, that's a real slippery slope too. Any any performance with paired with drinking of any kind, it just it falls apart real quick. Art openings are the same way though. Yeah. And I don't think our culture talks about it enough. Uh, I think it's just kind of like ingrained in the whole thing. And I don't know that that's healthy. Uh, I, I There was a sober bar that was supposed to open up in Sacramento in May. And then, of course, like, we know how that went. But that's, yeah, I, I do. I think about that a lot. The, the drinks at Badlands are strong. <laughs> They're heavy. But back to art. Yeah. <laughs> and to <cheap. laughs> And it, it's all part of the art. I mean, you kind of just touched on it, but maybe go in a little depth about more of how a la mode came to be. Like yeah. your drag mother, drag family, anything like that. And how would you kind of, you know, put that that two two sentence summary of this is a la mode? Um I think when I was in that collective, that was a really great kind of like um, incubator for me. I, when I started performing again in Sacramento, um, it was just like, it started as, as um, very much that like femme face male body. And then it morphed into more of a high drag aesthetic. It was a natural progression. And at no point did I say, I'm going to be a drag queen now so I can be famous. And I'm proud, I'm proud to say that because actually, like, if I think about it now, I'm like, oh, good. That's good. Like, I'm glad that's not how that happened. Right. Because of drag race, there's a lot of people who do the opposite or there's inevitably. Yeah, and, that, and that's all good. Every musical theater student who um, graduated from conservatory and who doesn't fit a certain type but doesn't want to be on the ensemble <laughs> has probably become a drag queen and has probably auditioned <laughs> for that show. <laughs> Maybe just because we threw out some terms there, um, for anybody listening who is not sort of familiar with drag culture and, and everything that, that goes into it, can you talk a little bit about, like we talked a bit about forming the persona, but like how it comes to be and like how much a social culture sort of plays into that? I think every, a lot of drag queens say that they started on Halloween. I've heard that a lot. Um, they dressed up as you know, uh, Britney Spears flight attendant, um, look in toxic music video. And it was really messy and they loved the feeling and it stuck. Um, I think everyone does drag for a different reason. What I love, I went to an exhibit a couple of years ago and it was a whole bunch of, um, it was about drag in like the seventies, eighties, nineties in the village. And it is like, you know, men, of all shapes, sizes, and to be inclusive, not just men, but trans women of all shapes and sizes wearing wigs that do not, are not, you know, like gorgeous and incredible and wearing outfits that 
do not make their bodies look amazing, but they're having fun on stage. And a lot of drag performers find this newfound freedom and find themselves through drag performance. Um, and there's something so exciting and special about it. My favorite thing is that moment. And we have it a lot of after hours, the newcomers, the new performers, you see them come into their own. Um, and it's just like, it's amazing. There's nothing like it. it. And you can't, you can't manufacture that. Like, you know, documentary can, can use editing and quick cuts to manipulate your emotions, just like a, a Pixar movie would. This is so genuine and like unedited and raw and, uh, it's awesome to watch and to um, witness. Do you remember when you had that moment where you're like, oh, this is it? Oh, my God. Well, probably when I was a kid and I was taking like modern dance classes because I, you know, I, I grew up in some crunchy ass neighborhood in Brooklyn where, you know, like everything's bougie. Well, not everything's bougie, but, you know, it's like it's the mid 90s. So, like, of course, there's a modern dance class for like a little gay boy. That first concert. Uh, when I was five or six. And then drag-wise, there have been several moments. I'd have to think about that. I have to sit back. You know what? I'll be thinking about it in the back of my mind, and hopefully it'll come out at some point. So do you find um, anything about your you know, formal dance background kind of seep its way into your drag? Yes, yes. I had this incredible teacher named Marianne Soto, and she is this larger-than-life um, Puerto Rican um, modern dancer and improviser, and she um, only wears red, orange, and pink monochromatic ensembles, and she um, is an incredible educator and artist. She's so accomplished. She was running in the same circles in the mid-'70s, um, she was living in a giant loft in Soho when it was like a rough neighborhood in, in New York in the mid seventies and running around like with people like Trisha Brown and with Stephen Petronio and all these like dance greats. And she was just like killing it in the scene, doing her thing. And she was so important and so integral in my like growth as an artist because she always pushed you. You know, I think like uh, she feels like a dance life coach, but I hate even using that word. I'm sure she'd hate that I called that. I, I, I phrase it that way. But she really pushed, you know, and pushed. And that was so, so important. And she was blunt and she was direct. And I think that I also really value that. So, so yeah, I, I think from her improv classes, from some of my creative process classes, shedding the skin of formal technique training was really important for me to find um, what I actually wanted to create. I hate class. And it's not because I'm lazy. It's because uh, I hate being told what to do. But we're told that we're only going to be the best artists if we follow all of the exercises. And then I wonder, why am I listening to that? Oh, because I'm paying you to do it. Oh, okay. Well, right. All this, right? It's like in your head. And then you're like, okay, but wait, um, I, can, I can do what I want to do now. It's like they always say, when you're an adult, you can, you can eat ice cream at two o'clock. But you can't now because you're a kid. Yeah, we mentioned on, a, I think it was on the episode about me, like how powerful it is to have that realization. You know, for me, it was it was going back to school and, and pursuing a master's when I when it really hit me that you can do whatever you want. Sometimes you might have to explain yourself. Sometimes you get to just choose not to. Right. But the only the only real reason and art particularly that that you ever don't do something is because you decide not to right and sometimes they're for legitimate reasons but most of the time you can you just do whatever you want and worry about you know justifying it later maybe yeah and and i mean like you know but i'm sure we all have those nuggets of truth and those nuggets of knowledge we got from our mentors teachers as we were like on our path right but yeah it is like yes i can do whatever i want know the rules so you can break them like they would always say that but then like you get out and you're like, oh, yes, that's right. Know the rules so I can break them. I know the rules. Okay, fuck it. Let's break all of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you want to talk about um, your experience with competition and drag as an award-winning drag queen? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know that I ever feel like I'm competing with other people. I can be a very um, jealous person. And I'm, that's something I'm actively working on and have really tried to reflect on more during this time when, until I got a full-time job again, I had a lot of time to think and to kind of like sit with things. 
okay, well, if I've been wearing the same wig that I've, you know, owned for two years, maybe competing with myself looks like this. Maybe competing with myself looks like, okay, let me, maybe I need to hire someone to make this look until I get to a place where I can sew it well. Okay, maybe like, how can I elevate myself, compete with myself? I've heard so many people talk about it. I don't know that I was doing it for the longest. Can you talk a little bit, having had experience um, in other cities as well, can you talk a little bit about like what the scene is like here in Sacramento? Because I feel like we live in a really interesting city that outside of, like people know that Sacramento exists, it's the capital of the state, but that's about it, right? And there are a lot of things going on. There are big art scenes here that are kind of weirdly underground. Um, could you talk to like what the drag scene is like here and, and how it compares to some other places that you're familiar with? It's incredibly eclectic. It's incredibly diverse. I think because of the advent of um, drag on the internet and because of social media, a lot of performers, especially newcomers, are exposed to um, shades of performers in um, quote-unquote larger cities. And so they know sort of like what, what a drag king with four or five years of experience looks like. Um, and then they can kind of take that and adapt it as they would like. What I love about this scene is that I think that there's a variety, but what I'm frustrated by with the scene, drag specifically, is that um, Monday is, I always say after hours, the Monday night, by the way, it is a, for context, uh, it is a free show on Monday nights. It is an open mic. Sometimes there are 25 performers. So it is four hours of free performance and drinks are $3. You cannot find that. I, I well, okay. I can't speak to that. I, I mean, I don't think you can find that anywhere nearby. I don't know about like across the country. I'm sure it exists, but it's incredible. It is vastly underrated. Apple Adams has created this incredible space for people. And you know, to be honest, those nights that are four hours long, sometimes you're like, oh Jesus, like whoa, because people are new, <laughs> and you're like, oh, they have not, they've not moved, but the song is five minutes. You know, they're learning. It, they're growing, you know, like that's just the real. Um, but what's incredible about it is that people have a hunger, people have a humility, uh, and there's a freshness. And I find that across mediums in Sacramento, the visual art scene, um, the live music scene. Uh, and the only thing I wish is that for however small the grid, as I like to call it, downtown and midtown are, however small they are, they still feel very separated. Um, so a good example is there's this invisible line down whatever that is, 21st or 22nd Street, between Lowbrow and the Depot in Badlands. You can't see it, but it's there. There's Lowbrow and the Comedy Spot and Azul, and then you get across the street and it's the gay side. And there's something that's very kind of like, I'm like, girl, what year is it? Like, are we still doing this? Like, I did a show at the Comedy Spot back in like January. Um, I did not wear this wig. I wore another one, uh, a more expensive one. And it was so nice to be in this like, frankly, mostly straight space, like being a queen in full regalia. Like, it was awesome. It was this improv show where the first 20 minutes you tell stories, they ask you, they just interview you, you tell stories. And the whole show is based on the stories you told. It was awesome. I had a blast, but more of that, like blurring the lines and cross collaboration. Oh my God. Would, would blow up and make Sacramento even better than it already is. Yeah. And, and for anybody listening who is not familiar with the city, like it's Sacramento is one of the few cities that I've, ever been to that is really actually literally divided block by block like that is where that scene is and then you cross like you're saying you cross the street and it's an entirely different feel and if you're out there on a friday or a saturday like you can see those two things happening right across the street from each other but they don't always seem to really interact and then if you go a couple more blocks it's like you're in a completely different place we're really bad at uh sort of mixing everything. Well, I, I think that that's kind of true, but I think it's also just about like wanting to go and, and seek opportunities outside. I think you need to be, an, like if you're going to be an artist in a place like Sacramento, you need to be a self-starter. And to like, you know, so for example, like Daniel Trejo, who you have on um, a past episode, right? Like he and I collaborate on a zine. When I moved to New York, I literally was Google, like, sorry, moved from New York. I was Googling people. I found Daniel online. I emailed him. I had never met him in person. I was like, 
this person seems like they're not awful. I emailed him. We, we met in person and then we created this like zine a year later, which is literally about me losing my virginity. Like just having the, um, chutzpah to like go out and like collaborate and do it. Like, I think that's the thing. I don't know. I don't think we should blame us. Like, it's not like we're really bad at it. It's just like, right. you just got to go out and talk to people and see, see what they're like. And, you know, if you don't like them, move on or, but you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess my point is more that like, un, unlike certain other places, and there's always like an aspect of that. Right. But unlike some other places, it seems like here in Sacramento to some maybe different extent, you really have to pursue it. Right. You don't. Yes. You don't necessarily just fall into um, those sorts of situations as as much as you might other places because we are a city of little pockets. Do, do you think if you're, you don't have to speak for like the drag scene at large, but do you feel like you could pinpoint any reason why there's that hesitancy to kind of really push out and make drag more interdisciplinary with other arts, other opportunities? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the queen, a lot of the performers here um, started, so so some of them started as theater or dance performers, uh, and then they decided that drag felt more, you know, comfortable for them. The club is where they're getting booked. The club is where they're getting, you know, opportunities. I know of a couple of people who really do think of it as a business and they operate that way and they network and they're smart that way. Um, I think it just depends on the performer, to be honest, because I'm, I'm trying to think about like, okay, who are the people who are booked or booked more or like who, who are like regularly seen when we could be in person. And yeah, it depends. It's, it's based on their perspective. But what's interesting about a place like maybe Chicago or New York or Philly is you have someone who was a sculptor or was, a, um, I think of, uh, of Thorgy Thor, one of my favorites, you know, who was a, a violin performance major, you know, like um, at SUNY Purchase, you know, they were already a performer. They already had a talent. They fell into drag. Then those two worlds melded together. If those people are here, and they're drag performers. I didn't know that they, you know what I mean? Like they, they are there in some ways, but not, not always. I think there is that kind of like self ghettoizing that self kind of like, I'm going to be over here. We're at the club. This is the safe space. We're going to be here and do this. And there's also sometimes I think a fear of venturing out, but there's no reason not to, it's two blocks down the street. (laughs) But everyone's everyone's at a different place. Everyone wants to achieve different things. Like I think, you know, for me, I always look at it more of an art perspective. Um, I don't think that I, that makes me better or worse than anyone else. I just look at it more as like a, okay, well, if I can do this this show at one of my goals um, when before you know March seventeenth hit the date that will live in infamy one of my big goals was I wanted to bring drag into other spaces in Sacramento. Like I wanted to have like a punk rock night at like old Ironsides, you know, like I wanted to start really kind of being like drag can be anywhere. And I'm frustrated that won't happen for a minute, but I'm hopeful for when it does, if those bars are open when we get there. Having your art background, do you have any thoughts about how, um, especially as it's moving into more and more into the public consciousness in the public sort of lexicon do you have any thoughts about how drag and and the arts surrounding it sort of fit into the larger ideas of fine art you know and and those sorts of spaces which for better or for worse will eventually begin to consume parts of it and and start building a narrative around it can you clarify what you mean by like that second half of the question yeah as the general public accept something as as an art, as like an art practice. I feel like there is, to some extent, an inevitable sort of march toward bringing it into academia, right? And and thinking about it from all of the academic perspectives that come with academic art. And it also begins to enter in whatever way, whether it be physical pieces or writing or theory, it begins to enter the institutions that control and run the discourse of fine art and of academic art, that being universities and museums. And we're already starting to see some of that, right? Of like retrospective shows that talk about the history of drag and of issues surrounding it. So I'm, I guess I'm just curious, like if you are seeing that happen at all, and if you have any thoughts about like its place in that. Yeah. I think I never want the um, commodification and the, 
over-intellectualization of uh, any art form to ruin the fun at its core. So I don't want drag to become this completely commercial thing. And I also don't want it to be this completely academic, studied, focused, whole, you know, I never want drag to be a major at a college or university. <laughs> oh my God. That would be the, the death of drag as we know it, right? Because, because it, it is an art form, but I think what's really cool and interesting is the training ground is the ancient arts, dance, theater, music, uh, visual art, sculpting, you know, I'm, I'm broadly generalizing, but you know, the subcategories within that, right? Like I never want someone to be like, I'm getting a bachelor of fine arts in drag artistry. Shoot me. <laughs> oh my God. You know, like, that right. Is so right. Like, and, and yes, right now you can probably, t- you know, I know that there are wealth of classes you can take on, on the ballroom scene, on voguing, on um, drag, uh, on drag artists, right? Like that's incredible, and I think it should be studied and to, and should be recorded. It, it's so important as a as a piece of the overall like art landscape. But I never ever, you know, sometimes like a drag queen will do some like silly, dumb number about like um, getting fisted, and what I love about that is that if you do see it in a more fine art space, it's going to come with a certain level of irony. Like you're almost in on the joke and then you lost the joke. And what I like about drag, what I love about drag is like how kind of matter of fact it can be and how crass it can be. Um, I haven't figured out the mechanics of it, but I really want to do a number where I'm like impossibly beautiful And then at some point in my impossibly high heels, I squat and I take a maybe or maybe not fake shit on stage. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) That to me, that is like the pinnacle, right? Like that is it. So I'm just like, please don't, please don't, you know, like don't do the whole, like, what does this mean for, I always, I always used to make fun of the master's students at my, at my school. I'm thinking about the, um, uh, negotiation of this idea that like the space between my fourth and fifth uh, cervical vertebrae are focusing more deeply on this ideology around (laughs) the notionality of a reality, focusing on the idea that sometimes when I make a sandwich, I forget to add mustard. What the fuck are you talking about? Drives me crazy. We're not doing that. I feel like whenever art enters that space, as somebody who spends a lot of time in that space for uh, <laughs> whether I want to be there or not, sometimes it, uh, the the art that exists there is always uh, sort of backward facing too, right? Like it's always reflecting on what came before it. And I, I feel like any counterculture sort of practice loses something. That's what it loses when it moves fully academic or when it is sort of picked up by academia as it loses that like forward looking forward thinking, like this is where we're at, but how do we progress? It becomes easier or safer or more accepted to go, well, where were we and how do I reflect on that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like RuPaul has been quoted as saying that drag will always be counterculture. It'll never be mainstream. Yes. But do you think that will be, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you can't predict it, but, you know, the direction in which it's going. Um, I've already said enough about that show, trademark symbol, right. um, yeah. to possibly incriminate myself. I'm not <laughs> supposed to speak out. Of, you're not supposed to speak out against it at all if you ever want to be on it. And I don't know if I have illusions to ever be on it. But, you know, if you post anything on Twitter. Yeah, right, we'll destroy right. the tapes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. Um, uh, yeah, no. Okay. I have pondered that quote a lot. Um, and I thought of it when, you know, if she first said it, I was like, oh. okay. I think what she's saying is drag will never be like, um, Ariana Grande, um, sweetener, world tour, um, the Americas, uh, Europe and Asia. Like, I think what she's saying is that drag is never going to be this, you know, huge, like, but I'm not sure. I think that that's possible. Um, 
I'm looking at someone like Jan who has an incredible vocal range and who went to, um, you know, Boston conservatory for musical theater. Uh, you know, she could easily be this like pop sensation, give it a couple years and she's going to be there. Um, so I think, I think maybe what she's saying more or what I'm getting from that is the irreverent nature of, live performance, hometown bar, club, drag will never be mainstream. Um, because again, uh, I don't know if you'll ever see, you know, a drag queen at eight o'clock on a Thursday night taking a shit on NBC. That's my interpretation of what she's trying to get at. Um, but certainly more kind of commodifiable, polished, gorgeous, you know, drag, queens and and kings it's quite possible and maybe that sets up a sort of goalpost by which to measure um inevitably unfortunately it already has it already has you know it's like if you don't um if you don't come in with the giant hair and the new looks and there is this constant pressure and um and i think that that's good in terms of wanting to better yourself but when it gets to a place where um you're sort of like I need to look like the, the tiniest square that I see on, uh, on Instagram. No. How many hours of my life will I never have back looking at impossibly perfect pictures of um, famous or semi-famous drag performers? Right. So find the thing that the FCC will never get on television <laughs> and make that the core of your practice. Acronyms. I think the key is acronyms, right? If I spell <laughs> the whole thing out in acronyms, the, the sky's the limit. <laughs> um, I hope this podcast was sponsored by Starbucks because even though you're not recording every, like we get like a product placement every time Mason takes a sip of his um, mystery drink and it's, it's good. So, <laughs> It's just water, but the beautiful thing about this mug is that it's large and heavy and wide enough that I don't have to worry about accidentally tipping it over on my keyboard, which is something that I spend with any other cup the entire interview just terrified of. We love strategy. We love planning. So, um, (laughs) But the the downside to that is that I have to, you know, be an accidental shill for – a truly terrible corporation. But here we are. (laughs) But here we are. You know, that's that's the work. If you right. want to pay our bills, we'll take it. Yes, always. <laughs> right. I mean, Please. listen. Right. You don't know that line until you're presented with it. Do I, will I show for Starbucks? Oh, I, yes, absolutely. That's actually a great, that's like a great, that reminds me of the, um, the, the visual artists, particularly who become really famous. I'm thinking of like Jeff Koons and I'm thinking of, um, oh God, what is her name? Tracy. No, not Tracy. Oh, this is going to kill me. I don't have my phone because I wanted to be focused. Um, it's going to, it's going to bother me. There's a a very famous photographer and she's very like, she knows exactly what she's doing and she's very commercial. I mean, Annie Leibovitz comes to mind. Yes, that's one. But this one, this person specifically is, it's more about like the self, the self, the whole thing, you know? I'll I'll think of it at like three in the morning. Well, exactly yeah. right. It's yeah. it's uh, it's gonna kill me. Yeah, it, it's that balance of like, well, we have to pay the bills, um, but I think about it all the time. Would I? Yes. Would I? Would I do the ad for um, Grubhub or for Postmates? You know, if I could pay my rent for that month, um, maybe. Right. Would I? Um, would I take a sponsorship with Squarespace to, you know, have this podcast pay for itself? Yes. That's not the worst. That's not yeah. the worst. I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard any dirt on them, although who knows? I mean, who knows? Who knows? They're, they're just so, I can't imagine how much they're actually paying anybody at this point. Cause they are everywhere. They have, you know, that they are everywhere. Spotify maybe would be a better example. Yes. The, yeah, yeah. the Spotify sponsorship. Is we'll that worth it? it? Please. 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 <laughs> please. Anything. Please. Uh, <laughs> so do you want to talk about um, some of your favorite shows, favorite shows or ever numbers you've ever done, as well as some stuff that you have upcoming? I don't know if Team Polyamory will be, it'll probably happen before this airs, but do you still want to talk okay. about it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're moving course, very slowly. So. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. I totally get it. I'm, I'm actually right after this, I'm going to be filming for a show I have coming up, 
Um, and digital drag takes infinitely longer than in-person drag because you walk on stage, you do a five-minute number, and then you exit the stage. But um, now we are all expected to be, um, you know, uh, Melina Matsukas, who is Beyonce's creative director. We have to, you know, come up with these incredible, Set you know, like revolutionary, yeah. yes, these like insane, you know, visuals. And it's like, Jesus, goddamn. Um, Jump out of cars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, literally doing on stunts. Yeah. yeah, actually, um, Sean, I feel like you would probably love this. Um, Barry, Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra has incredible, uh, like mid seventies, like um, love making, like heart shaped uh, jacuzzi music. And all I want to do is like a, a four uh, a four minute montage, like seventies montage, just like laughing in slow motion to this crazy cheesy music because i'm so sick of doing like i'm doing a lip sync i'm doing a lip sync this is me doing a lip sync okay uh upcoming shows and i think in the future i'm looking to do more live digital drag i had done it over the summer and it was one camera facing on my like garage and i was like okay fine i really want to set up like five cameras and do like the what Erica Badu has been doing with her lives. Like she has four cameras and she is her own DJ and switch operator. I would love to be able to do a lo-fi version of that where I'm patching a zoom into Twitch. It is five cameras, but I've got like a flashcard taped to the back of a laptop. And when I don't want that camera shown, I just flip it over the lens. Um, so I'm hoping to do that probably in November or December at some point, um, play with that. That's kind of it. That's upcoming. Um, my sort of like day job, I am the program coordinator with 916 Inc., which is a creative writing nonprofit. We have a weekly uh, segment on YouTube called Inc. TV. It is for students in grades three to six. But if certain adults enjoy um, herbal remedies, I have the distinct feeling that they could end up having fun um, writing along an episode with us or just laughing for 20 minutes because they've had too much of that er herbal remedy. (laughs) (laughs) What a professional. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you brought up something really interesting, right? Because I find it really interesting with the the show and then there's the other show right dragula and in a weird way it kind of creates this weird divide of regular in air quotes drag and quote-unquote spooky drag and it feels like they kind of make two territories of drag which i find you know like you know drag is anything but it feels like they've put two subcategories and kind of drawn a line in the sand a little bit and so I yes. don't know if you'd like to comment or discuss that a little bit. I think what drives me nuts is the fact that there is this like this separation and this spooky versus um versus oh, well, okay. feminine. Okay, okay. So here's the thing. I think what they're doing with that other show, thus that spooky show, um, that I think is so exciting is they are recognizing that drag artists in real life, hometown gay bars, I like to constantly keep referring to it as, uh, come in all um, uh, gender expressions or sexualities or whatever you want to call it, right? Trans Trans women, trans men, cis men, cis women, everyone in between. Straight people. Oh my God, the straight drag queen. It's like, wild but it's a thing you know like you're like yes great amazing um i think what i love about that spooky show is the fact that like it's very clear that they're focused on the artistry and on on what that performer brings to the table and not so much um will this person garner likes will this person gar- like like bring viewers um i've heard a lot about people uh i have a, a, a family friend actually she's trying to publish a book and she's been meeting with different agents and they've said you know oh you only have this many followers that is total well why why it, it matters now apparently but the reality is your potential for a following 
may not come until after you've given someone else that aha, that breakthrough moment, right? That intellectual orgasm that's going to get them where they always needed to be, but couldn't get there quite themselves. It is this idea that like, um, you know, you can only, you know, I, I think about this all the time. Like my, my eventual goal for however smutty this interview was, I would love to have like a Linda Ellerby, um, like kids show where like my persona teaches kids like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, um, about current events and about things that are important to them. Uh, it feels like it's never been more relevant and I would love to be able to do that. You know, I am thinking about someone like Billie Eilish, who is very visual and who appeals to like the middle schooler, right? I would love to create that. Pitching that to a network or a streaming service when I know that they're not necessarily going to be into me because I only have 15 some fo- 1,500 some followers, it's wild. But that's where we are. And it's like, so it, it essentially is the have and the have nots, right? The, and the people who do get that big chance to make their aha moment is often with riddled with so many barriers of class and race. And- but we have this what you're touching on is we have this new additional um, sort of gate, which is the social media, which matters so little in the long run. But, you know, in a, in a uh, episode that came out um, the week before we're recording this, talking to somebody who has been very successful on there, she couldn't, you know, she could not imagine a, a world where that was detrimental, right? That, that you know her her outlook is that anybody can make it on social media and it's just up to you and the reality of it is at this point it's it's not that way right it's um becoming saturated with the same problems that everything else has the people who are who make it not always but oftentimes have backing from other places it just sort of cascades Yeah. And I also, I really feel strongly that we are at a social media peak and a boiling point. And I, I feel that the next, the, um, the flavor of the month and the next big thing and the next trend and all that other stuff, it's going to perpetuate. And I feel like it's going to be exponential. I'm thinking about this kind of like, um, purgatory that TikTok was in for two seconds and then it wasn't, but the long term, we saw how vine was there for three years Literally my senior year of college mental breakdown is completely chronicled on all my vines. Oh, so can we find this or no? It's it's gone forever. Thank God. Well, so I archived all of them. It's not like all these, like, it's not these short videos of me just like bursting into tears. It's not like (laughs) leave, it's not like Chris Crocker, leave Britney alone. But like I dyed my hair turquoise, I shaved the sides, but it was still long on top. I had a mustache that was not really a mustache. It was just like (laughs) 10 little single hairs, you know, just, yeah, well, you know, we all go through phases, we all go through looks. Um, But, but, you know, I, uh, I really feel strongly that social media hopefully will die with everything else um, uh, of the internet age in terms around popularity. At least that's the hope for me. Like, yes, I cultivate and I, I um, curate posts for social media because that's part of how I continue to like, you know, grow what I'm doing and grow out my art and share out what I'm doing. But recently I had shared on my story, um, you know, how would you keep in contact with people if you didn't have social media? I did it as like a and a a little like survey or whatever, a poll. I don't know what it's called. Um, I'm glad I don't remember what it's called. Um, but people's answers were so interesting. People were saying, talk on the, f-, and it was very generational. Oh, talk on the phone, send postcards, write letters, like all these things. And so I wrote down the people who, everyone who'd responded. And I want to take a picture, like maybe a favorite or one of my favorite pictures um, from recent, you know, posting. And I want to get it printed on a postcard and send it out to those people, you know, like as kind of a project of, this is how, what I would love to do all the time is get the address for every one of my followers and send them a postcard. Because whether or not I follow them back and whether or not I like or comment on their things does not feel nearly as special as getting a piece of mail, especially right now. Yeah, there's there's something about that personal relationship that we like to imagine, I think, we don't need or we can ignore. But then when that's activated, especially by somebody who... um 
who you admire, but have no reason to think that, that they see you, you know? Yes. To get a postcard from that person. Yeah. Have either of you seen those, um, uh, the SIM or like the digital model Instagram accounts? Yes. Just, just, oh my God. So it's like influencers, influencers, but they actually have like several hundred thousand followers and they're literally just a simulated model thing. Okay. I can imagine this. So, so, um, yeah. So born and raised representing Sacramento, Sawiti, um, uh, known for her hit single, my type, um, uh, and others of the ice hashtag icy gang. She posted a picture on Friday of herself drinking like, uh, something with this, this person, uh, next to her. And I saw the picture and I was like, this person looks really heavily Photoshopped. Like, wow. Like, they are like blurred. And then I was like, oh, that is not an actual person. <laughs> and this put, this sent my friend, uh, like I was, I was with a friend and this sent her into like, she was just like, no, like make it go away. Like get it away. Like this is not it. And I clicked on the, the weird, um, fuzzy digital model person. They look kind of like a groupie for the gorillas. Like that's who this specific <laughs> okay. profile was for. <laughs> and she has 1.6 million followers. Mm-hmm. And like brand deals. And brand deals. Wild. Absolutely wild. By the way, when we were talking earlier, I found the name of the artist I was referring to, Cindy Sherman. Uh, um, yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. So she's a great example, like Jeff Koons, of someone who to me is like um, definitely kind of commodified and sort of Instagramified their visual art in a very specific, intentional way. And and if I can real quick, like Cindy, when I teach uh when i teach i like to talk about cindy sherman because her early work was really groundbreaking in a lot of ways and 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 particularly sort of feminist thinking about like what does a photograph mean and what does self-representation mean on film for women super fascinating stuff and really good to have in a class when you are talking about portraiture and introducing people to portraiture for uh, for young women that sort of need to see that this is a thing that I can talk about. And like, this is work that exists. So to have Cindy Sherman move in the way that Cindy Sherman has into this, like, like you're saying this, like heavily commodified, like, you know, on the one hand, she, she can pay her bills, but on the other hand, it's like, you've really lost the things that, that made your work so important and make me talk to you, talk about you to my students. So. Yeah. Well, what's what's and what's sort of cool though, the way that I was able to find her name is I went to a Louis Vuitton like retrospective and I was Googling. I remember that she had designed something for them because they've had a series of artist collaborations. They did one with Yayoi Kusama, they did one with um, Murakami, um, and they did one with her. And she did this incredible, I remember it, oh, she did this trunk and it was like this old style trunk where when you open the clasps and it's it, and it opens up, this is like a drag uh, performer's dream. Um, on the one side, it has a rail where you can hang clothes. And on the other side, it has a whole row of drawers and every drawer like is a shade of green from dark forest green to olive to lime. I was like, okay, like now I understand Cindy Sherman in a really wild way. (laughs) Like a, this really like roundabout. Oh, okay. I, I understand how your artist brain works. Similarly, I think about um, the work of of Barbara Kruger. Are you familiar with with her work? So um, she has done lots of different stuff, but like her signature style is a usually a black and white photograph or graphical image with a block of white text on either a red square or a black square. Oh. And so she has. Yeah, she's done. she did for Nordstrom's or Macy's or or somebody. She had a line of like shopping bags, like like if they you know put your stuff in a bag, it would be a, a piece of her art basically. Um, and she's done work like that. But then the brand Supreme stole their logo from her, and she decided that she wasn't going to pursue it, you know, because it was antithetical to her work. 
until Supreme sued somebody for copying them. And she said, no, hang on Excuse a second. Me? Yeah. Like, let's be, so I just want to say that I love that Mason got to the, um, the kernel of truth around shade. Um, right. Because literally like, uh, uh, Supreme has committed carnal shade in, in this in this idea that like <laughs> how dare you right oh my god right. that's crazy <gasps> no. it's a wild story um, oh no but it's so oh. great yeah but Supreme is also just the worst and I will not take a brand sponsorship from them no thank you what is what makes them the worst I mean to me it. Just like streetwear, right, has so many racial implications, and I feel like they've co-opted it in a way, and especially now how it's leaked into high fashion, like places like Louis Vuitton and Balenciaga, where it is now inaccessible from the people that they stole from these ideas and aesthetics, and now they use these aesthetics that are just like three inches away from just being cosplay and cultural appropriation as do, like what to wear and what is cool. And it's just like, yikes, how do we even attempt to fix that mess? Yeah. And I would say that Supreme takes it one step further in that, like their entire brand is built around commodity, not just commodifying, but like, um, sort of creating luxury items out of things that are not supposed to be luxury items. And these, these things that everyone should have access for to bricks, right? Bricks are super important. Supreme sells a brick for $500 or whatever it was. It, it, and it's sort of a parody on itself and I, you know, it's self-referential, but it is clearly designed by a marketing team, you know, to, how many that. meetings did they have about the damn brick? It drives right. me nuts. It's so right. pe- it's so like a I have a friend a photographer who had this really incredible um uh opportunity this past weekend. He was flown to Nashville to to photograph someone and it was like a dream artist for them and yada yada and it was amazing. And um I they had to collaborate with a third party. And it was so interesting hearing about it because I was like, damn, don't you wish you had your own team? Can't you wait until you have your own team so you don't have to deal with the kind of the middlemen? Um, I don't know enough of the facts around this, but I know the Whitney Museum was um, curating this exhibit a couple months ago. I, I don't have the facts. All I know is it was messed up. That's what I remember about the facts. What are we even doing? Like, what are we here to do? what is the purpose of any of this, right? Of presenting art, of uplifting artists. Like what is, what is your job as a PR firm or as a museum? Like, is your yes, you're a business. Yes. You need to keep the lights on, but. Well, and maybe if we can put a little moral of the story on this, I think that just from a very outside view, the, there's some hope that the sort of rise of drag and, and of that culture um, it it gives me some hope in that it is still very much this thing that is holding on to its counterculture identity and allowing allowing itself and allowing the the people who create it, the people who make it, to continue to be um, counterculture in in the way that that they are, and that is very specific to it. And that gives me hope for all other art forms that. Um, are we're all struggling with this right it, we're all struggling with that podcasting even you know like it it all becomes commodified and and we're all but we're all having that same exact fight and so having seeing a a practice a medium um sort of so far successfully in a lot of ways kind of push back against that and and kind of maintain itself is for me personally like really inspiring and gives me a lot of hope for and the difference though right is if you are the counterculture thing and the exciting thing you also need to remember and know your worth like i feel like so many times artists and especially drag performers are asked to be the most interesting person in the room are asked to be a part of something and the compensation does not fit the ask so yes, it's awesome that we're being included and it's awesome that we still get to thrive, but you need to pay us our worth. And that doesn't come from a place of like an exorbitant amount of money. Um, 
it's just that, you know, a major corporation who has a headquarters here in Sacramento asked me to do an event. And when I quoted them my rate, they ghosted me. Classic example, right? Like, no, that's not, that, that is the part where I, I, I do like have to push back and say, yes, I am the counterculture. Yes, I am the innovator, just like you are, just like Sean is, but right. I still um, Open your need purse. to name my price. Open yeah. your purse, name my price, remember my worth. And I think everybody needs to do that, right? Especially as we are trying to come up, right? You, there, We need to find a way to get past the, and it's really hard, but as we keep coming back to, we need to find a way to get past the, you know, if I let them pay me less or or let them just pay me an experience this will give me the opportunity that will you know at at some point we all have to sit back and and say well wait no i've put however much time i've put into this and i i know what it costs and i know what it costs me and so this is what they need to pay me yes mason can you be my agent <laughs> I have no experience, so that you might be an have, interesting you know, like, project. You just have like a yeah, there's a calm resolve. Like you're you're stating the facts, but at no part are you getting heated. Um, and that's really that's a talent. So you know, just, yeah. I'll I, I'll, uh, I'll think about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, and we'll uh, it he takes um, a fifteen percent commission fee. He uh-huh. doesn't work Sundays. <laughs> are you his age? Are you his agent? Apparently, maybe. Sh- Sean has. As as I keep saying, Sean showed up one day. We were friends before this, but I was like, "Hey, Sean, I'm doing a podcast, and and you know, want to talk to you." And Sean was like, "I'm part of the podcast now," and here we are. So, so he works. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really really cool to talk to you. And yeah, I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you can uh, for those listening in, you can follow me on Instagram um, at triple A. Ah, 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 la mode. Um, same username on Twitter. And then also you can find a la mode on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn for a la mode because I, I refuse to believe that, uh, you know, we only belong in like the most subversive of spaces. So yeah, thank you so much. I had a great time and I, I want to like, um, send you something. So send me, email me your addresses. That sounds ominous, but like a postcard. (laughs) All right. Definitely. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?